if you had if you had a situation where there were there was were no laws and no police force what you would have would be rich people would form private armies and they would become government which of course you know if you look back in history that's what used to happen you would have these warring tribes with their local baron and they might go to war with the neighboring baron sometimes and try and take over the territory so if you were one of the serfs in that kind of a world you were essentially worth nothing you were uh, almost literally cannon fodder Hi everyone, thanks so much for tuning in to another episode of Chatter. Before we get started, I just have a few quick messages. First off, don't forget to like, share and subscribe to this podcast. It's the best way that you can help us grow. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave us a review. It's going to help us rank higher and get more and more views and therefore bigger and better guests. Links for everything will be in the description below. So please enjoy the podcast. Uh, yeah, hello everyone. Welcome to another episode of Chatter. Today I am back with uh, economist Mark E. Thomas. Uh, Mark, welcome back to the show. Thank you very much. Good to be back. Yeah, not a problem. It's great, it's great to have you back. I really, really enjoyed uh, our previous conversation and I think I've cited you in like one of every three podcasts I have done since <laughs> because, yeah, you, you did such a great job the last time of, of laying out a lot of the problems that uh, Britain is facing that's sort of built up over a long period of time. So, yeah, it's great to have you back to chat about some more stuff. Great to be back. Um, so one of the things you have been talking a lot about recently is the the NHS privatisation. So um, we've got currently got the the health and social care bill um, making its way through Parliament, um, and we can get to that in in a minute. But I thought we'd maybe just start with um, where NHS privatisation sort of begins for you. Like wh- where does that story start, and where has that led us to now in uh, the situation we're at before this bill gets potentially passed? Well, the NHS has um, never been completely national because GPs have always been um, not actually employees of the NHS. They traditionally used to be either uh, sole practitioners or in partnerships. Um, So so it's never been 100% um, uh, NHS as uh, NHS employees. Um, But what we've seen is that um, over time, and particularly over the last 40 years, there's been quite a determined move to get health and social care so that instead of being a universal service, which is paid for um, by progressive taxation and available to everybody free at the point of use, increasingly people are having to pay for things themselves. So... When, when we talk about privatisation, um, the, the government always denies that it has done any privatisation or has any intention of doing any privatisation in the future. Um, but if you think about privatisation, actually, there are, there's not just one way of doing it. That I, I think it's true that they are not going to turn the NHS into a, a, a PLC and then uh, sell it in a trade sale or float it in, on the stock market. That's true. They're not going to pro- privatise it in that way. But there are three other ways that they can make people pay privately for their health care. So one way is uh, something they've been doing a great deal of, which is contracting out. So large numbers of things which used to be done by NHS employees are now done uh, by private companies. Um, so if you call 111, you'll be speaking to a private company. If you if you ride in an ambulance, you'll almost certainly be riding in an ambulance which is uh, owned and driven by uh, people who are employed by a private company. Wait, what, really? Um, oh, like most of the ambulances? Yes, I think so. Wow, okay. Yeah, wow. and uh, ma- many, many other services. So um, in itself, that's not necessarily a disaster, because you're not charged if you call 111, you're not charged if um, you go in an ambulance, whereas in the States, you would be charged, you know, maybe $3,000 for an ambulance. So 
It's not as bad as that. But the problem is the argument for contracting out is supposedly that it's much more efficient. But what we've seen in particular during the pandemic is that it can be vastly more inefficient. So the government um, uh, ministers got personally involved in uh, the procurement of uh, personal protective equipment for uh, staff. And they have wasted, uh, according to the um, Department of Health's own figures, the best part of 10 billion pounds of our money. Uh, and, and the reason they wasted it was because they didn't procure from companies that had a proven track record. They set up a VIP lane where contacts of ministers and party donors and people could put in bids. So some, some big bids were won by companies which had nothing whatsoever to do with personal protective equipment. One of them was a private office for a very wealthy family. But essentially, it's, it's like a kind of personal bank that exists to make that company richer. And because they had contacts with ministers, they were then able to um, act as the intermediary for a huge contract, which was about 250 million, 250 million pounds. Um, and they, they got somebody to provide uh, equipment, most of which was unusable. It, it wasn't actually usable. So huge amounts of money going to favoured uh, people in the, in the corporate sector who are well-connected with ministers or are big party donors, crowding out the suppliers who could actually have done it. So not only is it a huge loss of, um, of money, of our money being given um, probably illegally, I mean, the court, the, the, these cases are still going through the courts, but um, our money being given to these donors and contacts of ministers, but also at a time when that equipment was desperately needed, it wasn't getting through because the warehouses were filling up with unusable stuff. So lots of, lots of needless deaths caused by it as well. And of course, um, you know, if you think 10 billion is, is a lot of money, then 37 billion, which is the amount in total that was earmarked for the test and trace system, is of course an even larger amount of money. It's, it's actually a mind-blowing amount of money to have spent on the test and trace system. When I was looking at it, I was trying to think, well, what, how much money is 37 billion? It's completely outside my experience, and I dare say your experience as well have you know anything remotely like that amount of money so I tried to think well you know what what would you expect to buy with that and I discovered that if you add up the annual budgets of the three armed forces the army navy and the air force that's 39 billion so the amount that they have earmarked for test and trace was effectively the same as one year's budget for all three armed forces and when you look, when you walk around the country, you see the evidence of that. You see people in uniform, you see jets flying overhead or helicopters or cargo planes. You see people in uh, khaki lorries. You occasionally see tanks being moved around. You know, you see the evidence everywhere. If, you, if you're by the, uh, by the coast, obviously, you see frigates and destroyers and occasional aircraft carriers. So, you know, you can see where billions goes. But you can't see where billions have gone, and certainly not tens of billions in the case of test and trace. And when the National Audit Office looked at it, they concluded it was failing. So not only did they spend vastly more than you would expect, again, through these VIP lanes, um, but they, they ended up with a very, very expensive service that didn't really work. And again, that results in loss of life. So it's not just that they're plundering the public purse it's also that they're completely careless of the loss of life that this causes so so that's contracting out that's the reason why contracting out isn't good then they can throw you out so a few years ago your gp could prescribe over-the-counter medicines to you and so if you were poor in particular that was very valuable because you got a prescription and you took it to the pharmacy and you got your over-the-counter medicines now you have to buy them, and um, you know they're they're typically not the most expensive medicines, but nevertheless they're not cheap, especially if you're having to take them regularly. So so people have been thrown out, and over time we've all been thrown out. Um, uh, when I was a child, for example, uh, glasses um, and 
probably contact lenses weren't such a thing, but glasses were on the NHS. Now they're not. The dentistry is not really available on the NHS now. It, it is in principle, but it's quite hard to get it now. So, so you can be thrown out. And the, the last way is that you can be squeezed out. So simply by making sure that the NHS is underfunded, which they've been doing for 10 years, waiting lists are built up. So we've now got record waiting, waiting lists of about 6 million people. And that means that people who have perhaps not life-threatening conditions, but painful conditions get squeezed out and they go private. So last year, for the first time ever, more people had hip replacements done privately than on the NHS. Now, a hip replacement can cost anything from 8,000 to 15,000 pounds. So if you're wealthy, it's um, a, a, a huge expense, but you can afford it. Um, so you've been squeezed out. If you're poor, you're just still waiting. You're, you're still in great pain every day, um, waiting for two years for your hip replacement. So, so it's true, in other words, that the government probably isn't going to do that great big sell-off, but they have been contracting out, they have been throwing us out, and they have been squeezing us out. And those are all ways of expanding the scope of the private sector in UK healthcare. And if you want to know why they're doing it, well, if you, if you look at the American system, it is the worst system in the developed world. In okay, terms actually, of Mark, can we, can we pause there? Because I just want to, I want to, I want to like clarify a few things you've said there just for people. Yeah, yeah. And then we can go on to the why. Um, yeah. so, sorry to stop you in your tracks, but I just thought that no, was no. the best place to get a pause there. Um, so I just wanted to pull up um, a couple of um, articles for people here that I have been looking at that were just to um, sort of confirm and add to a few things you've said here. So um, I'm not sure you'll be able to see them, but I'm going to read out what the, the important part is. So this is from The Guardian. Um, there was an investigation uh, five years ago uh, after a £63 million contract was handed uh, regarding ambulances and there was patients left waiting. Um, but then the, the stunning part is from uh, LBC. So this is from 2019 now. Um, that's that we now spend £92 million on private ambulances uh, per year. Now that's two years ago, so we don't really know what the number is now. Um, and then um, that number was just absolutely stunningly in 2011 just 400,000 pounds uh which uh, and that yeah that's from full fact so i mean i'm it's 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 amazing how much we spend on that um yeah i i i can i can't get over it and and to to your point about the nhs uh test and trace scheme i'm not sure if this is accurate but uh, I did see this trope going round that it was one of them. It was, I think, it was the fourth most expensive singular project in human history, behind the U.S. Interstate Highway, the International Space Station, and the King Abdullah Economic City, which um, I'm not sure where that is. But um, to build a whole city, uh, 69 billion, and then next comes the test and trace system. Wonderful. <laughs> um, it's yeah, stunning, and and we will get to the 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 looting of the British taxpayers' money uh, in a minute. But yes, back to why are they trying to privatise the health service? Well, the short answer is profit, because the US the US system is vastly more expensive than ours. It costs about two and a half times as much per person to provide healthcare uh, in the US as it does here but it's also vastly more profitable. So it's a disaster for taxpayers in America. It's a disaster for citizens who are patients because uh, they don't get the same quality of coverage. And two thirds of American personal bankruptcies come from medical bills, because even if you've got insurance, you still get these huge bills. Uh, so two thirds of people who go bankrupt do it because of medical bills. Or to put it another way, three times as many people go bankrupt as they would if they had a system like ours. So if we were to migrate to the, to the American system, we would have three times as many bankrupt people, three times as many people therefore probably in poverty as we do now, but it would be a 28 billion pound per annum, uh, $28 billion, sorry, per annum profit opportunity for US healthcare corporations many of whom are tightly connected with the people who've been pushing this legislation. So that's yeah. the reason they, they can smell the money. Yeah. And the part that concerns me about it is, um, so I'm a big fan of Naomi Klein's work. I feel, I feel like I brought that up last time. Um, <laughs> but uh, so 
she talks about using crisis to yeah force through privatization yeah. and to sell off state assets and and i don't know if we have a bigger crisis than we could possibly have than the last two years and and i see people's attitudes changing and shifting and just being like well if it doesn't work we may as well get rid of it and i see that way more than i used to like way well, absolutely. more and i think there are two reasons for that one is that of course you know the nhs has had covid thrown at it and not not only did it have covid thrown at it but it had covid with a very very bad anti covid strategy so you know new zealand has had fewer deaths in the whole of the pandemic than we had today many fewer actually uh, so you know if you if you compare the way they handled it with the way that uh, that that our government has handled it. They threw something at the NHS that no healthcare system in the world could have withstood. So, of course, that crowds out other things, plus the 10 years of underfunding. So people are, you know, the waiting lists are at 6 million, and that means people are disgruntled because if you imagine if you needed a hip replacement, it is pain, very painful when you need a hip replacement. And if you've been waiting now for two years for your hip replacement, um, then you start to to wonder why is the NHS not giving it to you. And then the Daily Mail in particular launched, uh, and I think the Spectator launched a really vicious propaganda campaign, effectively blaming GPs for the fact that you might not be able to get an appointment when you want one. And, and so people in the NHS have been um, suffering abuse and even physical abuse uh, whipped up by this kind of thing. But the, the bigger danger is that, as you say, it gets people used to the idea, well, you know, it, does, it doesn't really work anymore, so we, we, we've got no choice but to privatise it. And the, the, the real danger is if, if they do destroy the NHS, it'll be impossible to get it back because the story they will tell is that, you know, we tried really hard for 75 years, but in the end it didn't work, so we had to get rid of it. And it will, it'll be very, very hard to reinstate it. So it's vital uh, vital that we don't let it go. And the reason I'm saying that with such passion is because the bill, the health and care bill that you mentioned earlier, is actually in the House of Lords now. It's in the committee stage, which means that very shortly, the um, Lords will be voting on their amendments um, in uh, within probably a week or so. And then it will go to the Commons for the Commons to vote on the Lord's amendments. So um, obviously we are hoping, and, and indeed we've been campaigning, we've been writing to the House of Lords um, about the sorts of amendments that are needed to protect the NHS from this bill. Um, and we are hoping then that we can get um, hundreds of thousands of people to write to their MPs. So we have a campaign jointly with a number of other organisations um, Every Doctor UK, Gov2 UK, Nurses United, the Quakers, Keep Our NHS Public, uh, Open Britain, and hopefully the BMA and others will come on board um, to try to get as many people as possible to write to their MPs and say, you know, you're not getting our vote if you destroy our NHS or you allow it to be destroyed. Mm -hmm. So the time is urgent now. Yeah, yeah, and um, I believe uh, Julia Patterson, who from Every Doctor, who I had on the show last year, um, is has been doing a lot of work uh, on this as well. Um, so yeah, credit to her. Um, despite what many people think of her, uh, she's very yeah. Fierce. No, she, she, yeah. Her, her organization are involved. It's, it's not her personally. It's one of her hmm. colleagues who's involved. But um, oh, okay, yes, so, so they're in. So, yeah, uh, it's uh, because I think that the point that people miss and, and the part that, like, I think is holding back Britain from becoming the absolute just like lunatics asylum that America is, is um, like one of the things is is legitimately the fact that we can all get health care. And, yeah. and that's just and it, it's it's so alien to me to think that I couldn't that do you know what I mean that I couldn't Absolutely. just go to yeah. the hospital and get treated if there was something wrong but that's the reality exactly. that, it, that that is the reality that you know you hear these terrible stories of people who um uh get into an accident and and, and say no no don't call an ambulance I can't afford an ambulance uh, you know that's unthinkable in this country but 
um, you know, it can happen. And um, uh, it, it won't happen the day after the bill is published. What the bill does is effectively, it, it's simply a, a power grab by ministers. So it doesn't say, oh, we're going to privatise this, or we're going to privatise that. In, in that sense, it's quite a clever bill. What it really does is it gives them absolute power over the NHS, so they can do what they like to it over time without any scrutiny from the courts, without any scrutiny even from Parliament. Uh... If you try reading the bill, you won't see anything in there about privatisation at all. All you will see is stuff about governance. All it is is a power grab, but it just gives them absolute power. And um, the House of Lords committee, they have a committee to look at disguised legislation. And, that, and they said this, this bill was one of the worst examples they've ever seen. Uh, and uh, precisely because it removes the ability of Parliament to scrutinise what ministers are doing. So if the bill goes through, nothing will change the day afterwards. But over time, they'll be able to do effectively what they like with it. They can reduce coverage of it. They can uh, put the power to take decisions in the hands of corporations who will then stop providing services which aren't profitable. And they've stopped providing them in places where, where they aren't profitable. So we've already seen with um, GP surgeries, some of them have been bought by uh, corporations. And some of them, if you look at them from the point of view of a business, they are not profitable businesses. So they've closed the surgery. That's what businesses do. And, and this, is, um, this is an inevitable thing, because if you're a company director under the Companies Act, you have a duty to the members of the company, which means your shareholders. So if you've got an unprofitable business, you're not allowed to sit there and say, well, it's providing a public service, so I'll keep it. If you could maximize profit by closing it, you have to close that surgery. And um, it's bad enough when it's a surgery, but imagine if it's your hospital, your local hospital, which is no longer profitable. Yeah. Yeah, and and that that's been the the rationale for trying to close down um, a couple of different like local hospitals in in Northern Ireland at least. Um, so, yeah, it, right. it does happen. It's it's not it's not just like this abstract thing. That's no, not... it's not abstract, and and it, it probably wouldn't uh, always be whole, whole hospitals. But you can think of it in terms of services. Um, something like a hip replacement, you can do it privately and make a profit out of it. You just make sure you charge between eighteen and fifteen per person and you make a profit. So that's fine. Cancer treatment is hugely expensive. It goes on for ages. You know, surgery, you're in and out in a, in a day or two. Cancer treatment goes on for months, hugely expensive. So that might just become a bit unprofitable. For people. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the problem is for me is that like there, there are a lot of things in this world in which like the market and um, profitability and capitalism are really fantastic at doing. But I I don't think like it's it should be the highest like priority in in healthcare and because yeah. it just it 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 leads to some really awful decisions and outcomes uh, that, yes. that are just sort of and it, it, goes, it goes against the idea of a right. Hmm. So you know for, if you compare healthcare with buying a Rolls Royce, you can see where capitalism makes sense and where it doesn't. It makes perfect sense for cars to be built by capitalists because you know not everybody should have a right to, to drive a Rolls-Royce so if you have the money to buy a Rolls-Royce why not buy one and if you haven't then, then you buy something different but with healthcare you want you don't want it to be like that you don't want to say well um, you know Mark's better off than Josh so he he has a right to more healthcare than Josh you want mm -hmm. to say well you know they've got equal rights to healthcare that does that's not how it works if you start having people paying for their health care yeah yeah and that it goes to you then then you get into this horrible position where like where the entire industry has to fund like you, you're adding in the cost of the insurance industry to your health care you know like that money has yes. to come from somewhere yeah exactly all the all those groups have to make profit and also um it is almost inevitable that they get involved in the governance. And, and indeed, there's, there's a huge risk with this bill that they will because of these uh, integrated care systems, integrated care boards, some of which already exist, and some of them already have corporate members sitting on them. So, so there's one in the Southwest, which has the um, local CEO of Virgin Care sitting on it. So, you know, the idea that we're not going to have private sector motivated decisions in these ICBs 
unless the bill is amended, is just clear nonsense. The government denies it, but um, it's what they say is simply not true. Yeah, well, I mean, they, they're so truthful on every other topic that we should yes. just take their word it, for it, right? Yeah, you do need a little bit of salt to hand, don't you? So <laughs> you can have the odd grain here or there. Mm, just yeah. a touch. Um, so, like, the uh, one of the themes you were talking about um, from at the beginning there was is this the the contracting out the the vip yeah. lanes for the ppe yeah. the the just the handing of, of obscene sums of money to yes. friends and donors of of the cabinet like yes i i i am just blown away when i think about how that that's a banana republic like that is literally yeah. like an oligarchy <laughs> well it, it is and I think um, I think you're not the only one who's blown away. Um, a, a lot of journalists seem not to have woken up to what this government is doing. You hear people talking about um, big state and small state. You know, traditionally the left would would say the state has an important role in providing things, and the right would say yes, it does. But you know, by and large, um, uh, private sector is more efficient, so we should try and keep the state small and get the private sector to do everything. And that's, that's if you like, that's the traditional argument. Now, of course, we've got the highest taxes um, in 70 years, I think it is, in this country. And, and, and some journalists are writing about that as though, well, maybe, uh, maybe Johnson is the one nation Tory who's uh, trying to steal. But I've read articles saying this, actually. I know it sounds laughable, but this, this is what some journalists are saying, <laughs> that... You know, he's trying to steal Labour's clothes and all this levelling up is going to steal Labour's clothes. That is complete nonsense. He's not levelling up at all. He talks about levelling up with every breath. And indeed, I think today he said it was the defining mission of the government, in which case the government has manifestly failed on its defining mission. But they have no intention of doing that. What they're building is a plunder state. So it is different from traditional Toryism. They're not trying to just shrink the state. They're actually saying, well, it's perfectly fine to have quite high taxes as long as it's not the richest people who are paying those taxes. So when you look at how they chose to raise taxes, well, they reduced some taxes on banks. Um, they didn't try and close any tax loopholes at the top. They did increase national insurance, which hits all normal working people. So in other words, they're taking the money out of the middle of the population and funneling it to the very, very wealthy. So it's a plunder state. So they're quite happy to see a big state and, you know, 39, 37 billion for the um, test and trace. That's a big amount of money. They're perfectly happy with that because they like where it goes. It goes to their friends. And then I'm sure in some circuitous route, some of it will come back to them. So um, this is different. This is not just um, Tories being Tories. This is, as you say, it's a, a deeply corrupt, uh, institutionally corrupt government, which is doing something different. And that's part of the problem because people just can't really believe anybody would do that. Now, the evidence is, is becoming clearer day by day by day. But nevertheless, you know, a lot of people who are who've always voted Tory, they, they can't really believe it. They won't believe it until they've been told by enough Tory MPs that it's true, which might be starting to happen now. But you know, it's obviously that's a very bad way of getting your information about what the Tory party is doing if you only believe it once you've heard it from a Tory. So, uh, so, so yes, I think you're absolutely right. Uh, um, and also, I think you're, you're right to raise the shock doctrine point earlier, because um, clearly they saw the uh, COVID epidemic as one of those crises that they could exploit. And so we are talking about, in total, the best part of 40 billion, at least. That's mm -hmm. that's roughly 40 billion that we know about. Yeah. That's not counting all the things that we've got no idea about that are going on, yeah. uh, which which they've managed to plunder in uh, in two years. You know, that's really moving fast and taking full advantage of the opportunity opened to turn Britain into a banana republic. Yeah. So Ken Clark made the point that um, uh, we um, we are not so far from living in an elected dictatorship. Um, 
the reason they want us to be in an, in, uh, an elected dictatorship is to give them unfettered freedom to do that. If, if, it's, if it's effectively a dictatorship, they can do what they like. We can't challenge them in the courts. We can't challenge them in any other way. So, uh, you know, we might be unhappy, but what do they care? Yeah, yeah. Well, we can't rely on the opposition these days, but um, anyway. Uh, well, I this, mean, at least they're this, scoring a few points. Now. Well, yeah, they yeah. are at least finally. I mean, yeah. talk about setting them up for the volleys. Um, we mentioned this a little bit before we started. Uh, was this idea of the authoritarian scale, like everything from no government at all to um, Soviet Russia or, you know, modern day China or something super duper extreme. <laughs> uh, so where would you say, if you had to give it like one to 10, maybe, where would you say the UK are on that scale? Uh, well, that's an interesting question because... <clears throat> The idea of no government at all, of course, doesn't mean that there would be no power at all. No. If you had, if you had a situation where there were there was were no laws and no police force, what you would have would be rich people would form private armies, and they would become government. Which, of course, you know, if you look back in history, that's what used to happen. You would have these warring tribes with their local baron, and they might go to war with the neighbouring baron sometimes and try and take over the territory. So if you were one of the serfs in that kind of a world, you were essentially worth nothing. You were uh, almost literally cannon fodder. Um, and um, so uh, to a large extent, um, you, you want to have a government which can protect uh, people from the rich and powerful. That, that should be one of the, the principal jobs of, of government. The philosopher Isaiah Berlin had a, a phrase that I really like. He said, freedom for the wolves often means death for the sheep. So, you know, if you think of the wolves as, as, as the oligarchs, the more freedom they have, the more death there will be amongst the sheep. Mm -hmm. So you want a government which will protect normal people from the oligarchs. So you actually want quite a strict system of government, government because they're very skilled at finding every, every little loophole. And you know, if you think about competitive sport, uh, every sport has a referee and the rules are usually quite strict and the penalties for breaking the rules are strict because we know what happens when, when that doesn't happen. With the Tour de France, for example, if you look at the winner's board, you'll see there's 10 years when there, there's no winner listed. Several of those years, the, the winner was Lance Armstrong at the time, was considered to be the winner. And of course, he was stripped because he had been taking drugs. Uh, but the problem was, it wasn't just that he was personally corrupt, but he'd corrupted the whole system. People knew that if they wanted to compete against Lance, they were going to have to do it. So they couldn't just say, well, we'll give it to whoever was number two that year, because that person was almost certainly taking drugs as well. So <laughs> yeah. when, you, when, you, when you allow the system to become corrupt, um, it might start with a few corrupt people. But if you're not careful, then everybody else who, who isn't corrupt it um, feels, feels like the mugs. Well, why am I the only one who's paying my taxes? Why am I the only one who's um, sticking to the law? Mm. And you, you can see it must have been like that inside Downing Street. You know, if everybody else is partying every night, you know, you feel like a mug if you're obeying the law. Yeah. They clearly did have that attitude in there, despite the fact that they were laws that they themselves had probably helped to draft. Um, so, so you want this... Um, uh, you, you want a system which which functions, and actually, um, you know where where the rules are strict and where the rules are enforced. This is, of course, the most important bit on everybody equally that nobody would be above the law. So, if you're at either end of that spectrum that you described, you've got people above the law. In Soviet Russia, Stalin was clearly above the law, mm. and in the lawless world, the barons. Uh, or the gang leaders or whatever it's going to be, they are above the law. So it's only in the middle that you really have a functioning rule of law, mm. which is where I would like to see the, the UK going. Um, actually, I think where we're going um, is 
closer closer to the gangland thing, where we have we have um, a small number of powerful oligarchs who um, are above the law, effectively, and the politicians are uh, above the law. And uh, if if we're not careful, we end up in that situation where the rest of us are really cannon fodder, and the game will be to to uh, plunder all the wealth from those that have it, which is the, the middle half of the population upwards, um, until that's in the hands of the top 0.01%. Um, and, you know, if, if you go back to the early 1900s, the percentage of the wealth that was in the hands of just a few hundred families was, was extraordinarily high, um, and almost everybody had almost nothing. Um, now we're in a situation where about 30 or 40 percent of the population has almost nothing, but most of the population still has some wealth. You know, lots of people um, do still are, are able to uh, own a house, not, not everybody. And in, in particular, you know, it's getting harder and harder for people. So if we, if we don't change, then in 40 years time, hardly anyone will own their own house. It will only be um, either people who are very wealthy or were lucky enough that they they inherited one. Yeah. But, um, yeah, that becomes a really people. big problem in its own because it, it means does. It's it, a huge, yeah. huge problem because um, you know owning your house um, is a a kind of security. Um, if um, if you're still renting into retirement, then most people's income roughly halves when they hit retirement. And, and it could be worse. Um, so you could have lived in a house for 30 years if, if, you, if you've been renting, and then you suddenly find, well, I can't afford to, to live in this house anymore. I've got to downsize massively. Um, uh, and wealth generally is a buffer. Things go wrong in people's lives. And um, if, you've got, um, if you've got savings or you've got, got a buffer, then something goes wrong, your car breaks down and you have to replace it. It's a pain in the neck, you're fed up about it, but it doesn't ruin your life. If you've got no buffer and you need that car for work, you're really stuck. Your whole life could be ruined by the fact that your car has unexpectedly um, become a write-off. Um, so, it, you know, it really is, it's, um, it, it, it's a matter of, being able to have a, a reasonable quality of life, having a dignified life, that people have a certain amount of wealth. I'm not saying everybody should have a private island. That no, nobody needs that sort of amount of wealth to feel comfortable, but people do need a certain amount. And the, the real risk is that that certain amount will, will not be there, that, that very few people will have those sorts of comfortable, dignified lives. Most people will have lives of grinding poverty in 40 years if we don't change direction yeah i mean yeah if we don't change direction i think things will fall apart faster than 40 years um unfortunately uh i i i fear i fear this this point where the top one percent or even smaller fractions have so much of the wealth and that so many people have so little of a stake in the economy and in just like the system that they're just yeah. like, well, why would we not just burn the whole thing to the ground? And that that that's that's what I really fear more than anything is is because I want things to change, right? Yeah. And I would like a soft, non-violent, very peaceful re revolution. Yeah, yeah. But if Absolutely. we don't do that, that's no. I, I agree. In fact, there's a chapter in in the book Ninety Nine Percent which looks precisely at that. It says, you know, there are really only three. Uh, questions about the economy and, and and how it's going to be shared. Will it will the pie grow? Will it be shared fairly? And will we have a peaceful transition to our future state? So you've got three questions there. The answer to each one is yes or no. So there are only really eight possibilities, um, and many of those possibilities are unattractive. The ones that we're heading for at the moment are not the attractive uh, possibilities. So we we do urgently need to change track. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and and, and this government is. You 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 talked about um, people getting fed up with it. The government is moving very fast. Also, not just on building the plunder state, but on dismantling democracy. So there are bills currently 
in Parliament. Um, there's the election bill, which is on its second reading in the Lords, which is the one that, um, among other things, going to say that you can't vote unless you've got photo ID, which most um, older people do have, but quite a high proportion of poorer people and younger people don't have. In other words, it will disenfranchise precisely the people that won't be supporting the Tories. Um, the Electoral Commission itself is under threat. There's a judicial review bill, which is going to make it harder for the courts to scrutinise anything. So we talked about this uh, corruption with the PPE scandal and um, the uh, test and trace. Well, at the moment, Good Law Project is taking the government to court about those things. But if the judicial review bill were to go through, then a future occurrence of this would be beyond the scrutiny of the courts. They would say, well, the courts have no jurisdiction on this kind of thing. Wait a second. They're just, is it just to ditch the entire concept of judicial review by citizens? No, but it's to circumscribe it much more and give ministers much more discretionary power. Okay. Um, it's a bit like the uh, health and care bill. So uh, it, they're, they're quite clever with the way they draft these things. They don't say with the healthcare bill, they don't say we, we're going to destroy the NHS or or even any of the ingredients of that. All they do is shift the power. And it's the same with this, that it just shifts the power much, much more to ministers. Uh, and then, of course, there's the police bill, which is um, also, also in, um, uh, just, just returning um, from the Lords, actually, for final um, consideration of the Lords' amendments, which depending on, on what happens, could mean that the UK is one of very few countries in Europe not to have the right of peaceful protest. That's something which is supposedly a human right. Britain's signed up to it as a human right, but we're about to make it illegal with quite stiff penalties, actually. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, the uh, what happens if, if we do get to the point of violence... Um, is potentially extremely nasty. Yeah, once you start criminalizing protest, that this is that's a road that ooh. I mean, because and I I really hope that all of the people who have been the hundreds of thousands that are well at least tens of thousands that I've seen out at the the anti lockdown and vaccine passport protests across the UK is like these people need to be on the street for this. It is like they wouldn't have the right to go and do that and stand and protest whatever they peacefully would like to do. They will not have the right to do that if this passes. And that is like, I'd love to see everybody who, who just, like everyone that hates the government right now needs to realise that like we have bigger enemies to fight. Like it's it's so, yeah. yeah. And I, I can't stress this enough to people. It's like we, we need to not let this happen because if, if this goes forwards, in, and those uh, those bills that you've mentioned, plus the online harms bill, um, and the or oh, there's amendments I cannot remember what it is, but they're going to basically they want to try and start prosecuting journalists under some sort of espionage. Um, yeah, that's that's right. There's, there's there's another one which is going to make it harder for people to be whistleblowers, mm -hmm. and journalists that's... will find it harder to protect their sources. Exactly. So, uh, actually, they are being very systematic on this. They are. Um, they're looking at every single possible way that they can be challenged from voting to protesting to writing articles to whatever, every single route, and they're looking at closing it down. So if they if they were to succeed with all of this, then, um, as Ken Clark said, we would be living in an elected elected dictatorship. Yeah, yeah. And then, so this brings us to like one of the things that I've really struggled with, um, particularly over the past year or so. Uh, is this so we're we're aware both of us of of just how how much yeah this current government is attempting to undermine democratic norms undermine the the system of um not quite checks and balances but like the way our democracy and our system has functioned yeah, exactly it, yeah checks and balances yeah, yeah um and and i i watched this all happening at the same time in which we're we are being asked to give up um, some of those processes and some of our, our, our uh, democratic rights and civil liberties in the middle of a, of a pandemic. And I have really struggled 
to reconcile the the yeah the, this the, these two concepts because on one hand i'm yeah. like well you know yeah it's a pandemic like uh, people are saying we gotta you know do lockdowns or or we have to you know mm. do whatever the the, yeah. the the thing is that the, yeah. yeah and then on the other hand i'm like i'm thinking i don't want to give these crooks one one iota more of part more power they, yes. they don't need it they, they will abuse it and and like how yeah. have you gone about like trying to like yeah deal with that like conflict? well I, I think you're right i think i think there isn't a perfect reconciliation because um uh if you take lockdowns for example at the time that we had our first lockdown there was no real choice um it was uh, the, the virus was completely out of control. People were um, dying at an ever-growing rate. And if nothing had been done, then by now we would have had probably about 400,000 people dead, which um, at the time would have been considered completely unacceptable. Now, you know, we're getting getting on towards 200,000. Pe people seem to be inured to it. But at the time, you know, we, we still had our civilized norms where we didn't think it was all right to kill um, the best part of 1% of the population. Um, uh, and indeed other countries uh, it, it, around the world have the view that it's not all right to kill a huge proportion of your population. So, so there was no choice but to do a lockdown and, and that was the right thing to do. But this government found ways to abuse it. And that's, that's the problem. Um, and um, so, whereas if I were in New Zealand, they they locked down faster and earlier. As a result, actually, they've had many fewer days of lockdown than we've had because they, as Jacinda Ardern said, they went in hard and early. Mm -hmm. That means you stop the um, the virus from spreading before it's spread so far. Whereas the later you leave leave it, the bigger a problem you've got, and the more lockdown you need. So. Delaying it actually makes means you need more lockdown. So we've had more, despite the fact that our government has been more reluctant to do it. But also they have abused it. So we are in a in a situation where we have a government that we can't trust, um, either in its competence or in its intent. Um, and that really does make it much harder for us as a country to tackle the disease effectively. And as a result, we do have um, certainly not the worst in the world, but one of the worst uh, COVID records in the world. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, New Zealand, I'm always reluctant to use as a comparison just because they're so isolated and they are much more sort of self-sufficient and it's a more dense or more sparsely populated place. But but there's definitely no doubt that we could have done a lot of things a lot better. Um, it's... Well, there, there are more densely uh, populated countries than us which have done better. Mm. So, yeah. uh, for example, South Korea is more densely populated than, than we are, but they've done better. Mm. Yeah, so, well, yeah. I'm not. I'm not interested in getting into a you know no, no. Who, how to deal with this debate. It's it because yeah. it, they will last forever. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But the the main issue that like we're trying to point out here is that, or that I'm trying to like yeah get at here is that it's 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 really disturbing to watch watch this happen in real time because it's it's pulling on on so many different like aspects as so you're mm. thinking okay you know i don't want the nhs to become overwhelmed um so i think perhaps you know in this situation a government theoretically should have the power to do x y and z um, yeah. for like a limited period of time but then then i look at the people who are in power and i'm like do i trust any of you yeah. would I would I wouldn't even trust them to like carry my shopping in from the car, you know? <laughs> yeah. I, no, I agree. I think I think I think that is exactly the problem. So that um, even if uh, even if they came out with a plan that I thought, well, this is a really good plan, I would still be concerned because I wouldn't trust them. Actually, the first lockdown for about four weeks it was quite well handled because they did the lockdown and within a few days they'd introduced support a support package which was far from perfect but was vastly better than not having a support package including the furlough scheme and things like that 
And Do you think I thought, that's because they hadn't figured out how to exploit it yet? Yes, I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. They were kind of bounced into it, and probably they got, they said to the civil servants, right, give me a plan. And as a result, they got a good plan. Uh, once they then had time to put their own sticky fingers into it, they were able to ruin it all. And um, so, um, so if it happened again that they produced a good plan for something, I would say, well, this is a good plan, but I, I actually do not trust them mm. to implement it. And I do not trust them not to exploit every single loophole that this plan opens up for the benefit of themselves and their backers, because that's clearly what the evidence shows they, they have been doing. And, and so, so that means that they, they actually get less compliance from uh, the cit- citizenry than you would get if you were a trusted politician. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, less, you watched, com- yeah. Less, less, less compliance with sensible healthcare measures means more deaths. So the lack of trust actually means more deaths. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 a yeah. Well, that's a way of looking at it, isn't it? Anyway, um, so the, the this this loss of trust, um, and it br- br- brings me back to something you said earlier about how it's a power grab, and that this yes. is what this is what I'm witnessing, and and I've 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 looked at the the opposition who have been, yeah, okay, so with the parties and and the, recently they've been sort of a lot harsher on um, on the government, uh, you yeah. Know, finally doing their job as being in opposition yeah. um but throughout this and then when i've i've sort of thought you know keir starmer is looking more and more just like tony blair who is just uh, it lo- looks to me like the labor party is, is slowly morphing into another neoliberal party once again after sort of flirting with maybe not going down that road with jeremy corbyn they've like so, like solidly gone no that's not the way we're going here's where we're at um, and he he really concerns me because, like, as I mentioned before we started, he's he's kicked out the former leader of the party, the person who brought like I would say probably a hundred thousand people to the party, mm-hmm. maybe more. I don't I, I, I don't know actually what the figures are, but I know that the membership went up at least a hundred thousand whilst he was uh, leader. It went up to close to seven hundred thousand, I think, at one point. Um, but anyway, and it's down um, like I think two hundred thousand members or something now since since Keir Starmer became leader since it was uh, this peak when Jeremy Corbyn was. But mm. anyway, so I, I I witnessed this happening, and and then they bring in the the MP from across the aisle, who is uh, has been in favour of everything they're meant to stand against, and I just look at it and go like, are we living in a one party state? Well, I don't think so. Uh, I'm not a politician, so you should probably get your grains of salt ready for anything that I say about politics. But, but I don't think so. No, I think I think the government that we have now is um, not only different from the Labour Party, not only different from the Lib Dems. I even think it's very different from traditional One Nation Toryism. I think it is um, a Uh, much worse animal than we've ever seen before. And uh, so, you know, you you might prefer one one brand of the sorts of things we've had before to another. But really what what I'm saying is I would take anything, even when I'm not actually a Tory, but I would much rather have a one-nation Tory government than what we have now. I would then uh, disagree with them on quite a lot of economic policy and I would think they're not redistributing fast enough and so on but you know I might be able to have some respect for them in certain in certain ways um, I absolutely don't don't have that trust for this government um, and um, I do think any of the other parties would would do a vastly better job. So, so I don't think we're in a one-party state in that sense. Uh, the risk is that we're in a one-party state in a different sense, though, because um, we probably talked about this last time. The ownership of our mass media is very, very heavily concentrated, and about 80% by readership and viewership and so on is 
in the hands of people who are extreme right-wingers. They are um, usually not even UK domiciled for tax purposes. So they are absolutely pushing this market fundamentalist philosophy where if you're wealthy enough, you should be free to do whatever you like. And though those people, um, uh, uh, for example, you know, the Telegraph, the Mail, the Express, they have been absolutely the backers of, uh, of Johnson's brand of conservatism. And the problem is that they have a lot of influence. So despite the fact that it could well be that every single other party is united, in fact, I think they are, you know, sort of in a sense, broadly united in saying that um, Johnson's government is dreadful, that might not be enough. And it's still possible that despite everything that we've seen in recent weeks and months, and despite what the polls are saying today, if all of those papers make a concerted attack, which, which would logically, it would be on Keir Starmer in the same way as it was on Jeremy Corbyn, uh, because obviously, if you're the leader of the principal opposition party, then you're the one they have to demonise. Um, unless, they, if, unless, right, see, this is where this is where I become concerned. Is like when Tony Blair came, when 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 Tony Blair was was coming along. Yeah, the papers were happy to. Well, maybe not all of them, but the Sun, for example, and Murdoch, Rupert Murdoch, primarily went along with him, and the establishment yes. for me went along with him because he represented yeah. a brand of politics that would not hurt the pockets of the wealthy, and I, 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 I fear that that is exactly what Keir Starmer will do, and that is why I believe we're in a one-party state. I think, I think we are not somewhere where there is a credible party suggesting that we can, you know enjoy some some of the great benefits of consumer capitalism while having some wealth redistribution and trying to as you often put it like grow the pie for everybody and and yeah. that's where i i think that we're really yeah. in trouble well um it's very difficult if if i were leading the labor party i would want to get elected mm -hmm. and uh do you know the concept of the Overton window? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, maybe explain it if people are listening and they don't know. Yeah, I, I should explain it anyway. Um, so, so the idea of the Overton window is that there's there's a, a sort of window of of ideas that people are prepared to consider might be acceptable. So, ten years ago, if you'd said, "Look, the NHS isn't working. We we really need to privatise it," that would have been outside the Overton window. But people can move it through. Um, in a good way through uh, rational arguments and uh, convincing people with the facts or in a bad way through propaganda. So we've seen the Overton window shift dramatically in the last 40 years so that things that Margaret Thatcher couldn't say, although she did want to do, are now official government policy. And conversely, things that the Labour Party could say 40 years ago are, out, are now outside the Overton window. So if you want to be elected, you've got to be very careful that you, um, you don't talk, talk about things which are here, which are outside the Overton window. You talk about things which are here and you try to shift the Overton window. Um, so that's the reason why I, I, I say that, the, that I can't really give you a perfect answer because I don't, I'm not on the inside of Labour Party discussions and I don't know what they would like to say if they didn't have this Overton window to worry about. And that's that's really the thing you would need to know to give a proper answer to your question. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I guess we'll see that. So um, to to finish up here, um, I wanted to talk about trying to find some, some ways to be positive about uh, yes. this because we've been very doom and gloom here, you know. Yeah. Uh, so I, I was trying to think about, about ways to define this. And realistically, the thing that we're we're trying to imagine how we can make happen is to create like a beachhead or uh, the thin end of the wedge for yeah. just you know a better and more inclusive democracy and economic system. You know that doesn't that doesn't yeah. have to mean all the, the yeah. crazy things that everyone thinks it does. Uh, just no. you know slightly less top heavy would be awesome. So yeah, exactly. how, how do we go there? Well, so. Um, I actually do have a 
slightly optimistic feeling about that, certainly much more optimistic than I was six months ago. And the reason is because I think people are beginning to wake up to the reality of where we're going. So as you say, what we've been talking about is doom and gloom, but it was even worse six months ago because all of that doom and gloom was true, but very few people were aware of it. So there was hardly any resistance to it in any of the media. If I spoke to people in general, they said, well, I don't really know what you're talking about. I don't think it's anything like that. Um, now I think people are waking up and that is, that is hugely powerful. You know, we haven't got 60 million people who've woken up to it, but we have got millions of people now who've woken up to it. And I think uh, even within the Conservative Party, I think there were probably people who thought, well, you know, uh, I never really liked Boris, but, you know, he's, he's good for winning elections and we can, we can do the right thing. You know, we can sort of control him once we've got him uh, into power, which is, of course, the mistake that people made with Hitler. Uh, that he was put, allowed into power on the basis that they'd be able to control him, and then they found they couldn't. But I think, you know, we've, we've seen that there are um, considerable numbers of uh, Conservative MPs who not only privately don't, uh, don't like him, but actually think he needs to go now. And, and the question is when rather than if. Uh, so that, that is um, extraordinarily good news. I think that um, there is um, probably a, a, a much greater cross-party consensus on the need for checks and balances. So when I was writing the uh, book 99%, I was looking particularly at the US and everything Trump was doing. And so I sort of put together these ingredients of a democratic reset that would be necessary. Um, and I thought, actually, these are necessary in the UK too. But it wasn't so obvious then because I was writing that pre-Johnson. Hmm. And yes. now um, it is much more obvious. So um, when, when I started talking to people about it, they said, but, you know, you, you can't have discussions like that in the UK. We, we don't have a written constitution. That, you know, we've, we've got an unwritten constitution. That's the way we do things. And... Um, I, I was never convinced by the argument that that's because we've done it that way. That has to be how we do it in the future. But, it, you know, a lot of people had that frame of mind. And um, paradoxically, people used to say, well, you know, no UK government can bind a future government. So you can't um, uh, you can't have a constitution to which I re replied, well, if that's binding, then it proves you can have a constitution. And if it's not binding, then that also proves you can have a constitution. Uh, so, uh, That's brilliant. Oh. Uh, so, so, so I think you can have one. And I think people are much more likely to be alert to the dangers now because, you know, we, we just listed all of the checks and balances that they're trying to dismantle. So now the idea that those checks and balances are vital and need to be protected doesn't seem far-fetched or like a worst case scenario, it seems like a very, very real possibility. Somebody like Ken Clark might not have agreed with me when I wrote the book, but I bet he would agree with me now. Maybe he would have done then, I don't know. But he, he, he clearly, from what he's been saying recently, he would agree now that, you know, these checks and balances are vital. So I think, I think there's a, um, a much greater awakening to the need to address these sorts of constitutional matters and once you do that, if you have a constitution with proper separation of powers, proper duty on ministers to look after the whole of the population, and then you start to formulate fact-based policy, you are bound little by little to see things improve. So um, I, you, you won't get a perfect system, and sometimes you'll get people that you don't agree with in power, but as long as they're playing by the rules, that's okay. It's when they start um, breaking the rules, that the, as, as we can see, that the problem comes. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, if you had a, uh, a, 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 a rapidly reforming government, it might, if you had the equivalent of the Clement Attlee government, obviously it would do far, far more good, more quickly than a Harold Macmillan government would do. 
But actually, the Harold Macmillan government wasn't a disaster. Yeah. He said in 1957, you've never had it so good. And actually, that was true. If you look at the statistics, people had, at that time never had it so good as they had in 1957. So you know, if people are playing the game properly, you can have better governments and worse governments. And even, in, even with the worst governments, you can still be making progress. So that's what I want to see. I want to see not a perfect system, but a system where even when you've got the equivalent of the Harold Macmillan instead of the equivalent of the Clement Attlee, most people are still getting better off year after year. Mm. Well, that seems like a very positive note on which to end. Um, so, Mark, uh, I want to thank you for your time. Everybody, you can check out Mark's website, uh, the 99percent.org and the, his book, uh, yeah, of the same title. Um, so I will put links for those in the description below. So, yeah, Mark, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for making it all the way to the end of the podcast. If you want to leave us a comment, that would be awesome. Please like, share, subscribe. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave us a review. Until next time, thanks for listening.